0: Welcome to Critical Condition, America at a Crossroads, with your host, David Tatman.
1: Welcome to Critical Condition America at a Crossroads. I am your host, David Tatman. And this is season one, episode five of our program. As those of you who listen know, our show will present issues important to our nation and our community without the noise and bias that you often get through the mainstream media. We research issues that are most important to Americans. and We highlight those issues over a series of shows. We're focusing on crime first because it's so prevalent in our society and has impacted nearly everyone in one way or another. So remember, we need your input for this show to work. We will have guests on the show that will bring different expertise to the conversation. We have a great one today who I'll I'll introduce in a minute. Uh, We need to hear from you as we dig down into these issues in this subject matter. So we ask our listeners to follow us on social media and join the conversation. We are currently on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle on all three platforms is at criticalcon187. That's at criticalcon187. If you'd like uh, to follow us and comment, that helps the show grow and have conversations. If you're not on social media, our email address is show at gmail.com. That's show at gmail.com. You know the rules. If you have a good take, I'll share it with our audience if you have a great take, I may invite you to be on the show. So our first deep dive has been into crime. We know that along with crime, uh, there are some other issues. The economy, education, immigration, government, all are major cons- of major concern to Americans. But we're covering crime over the first few episodes of season one to ensure that we're able to give this subject matter the attention that it deserves and to do a little deeper dive. So our guest today is uh, Daquan Bruce. He is the executive director of Concerned Communities for America, a 501c3 advocacy group that promotes economic empowerment public safety, free and fair elections, and quality education for the black community. Daquan led uh, grassroots efforts mobilizing youth for congressional races throughout the country, and has worked with the rock star senator from South Carolina, Senator Tim Scott, and the House Select Committee on Modernization of Congress. He's the co-founder of Project 26 United, a nonprofit that seeks to curb gun violence through entrepreneurship in his hometown of Chicago. Uh, Daquan brings quite a resume to this show. In addition to being a scholar, earning a master's degree in design and innovation, Daquan frequently is featured on national media outlets, including Fox News, News Nation, Newsweek, and USA Today. Welcome, Daquan. How are you today?
0: I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, David. Well,
1: thank you. Uh, and you know, I know for you, a guy like you, I've done a lot of research on you and, uh, I know for a guy like you, this is not rhetoric or hot air. You have a real meaningful, uh, experiences as it relates to crime. Would you, would you uh, start us off and share that with us?
0: Absolutely. So, um, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm born and raised uh, on the South side of Chicago. Um, grew up in um, the Inglewood and then um, Fulham neighborhoods, which are two of the considered, quote-unquote, worst neighborhoods um, in the city. And then um, at a young age, my mom um, decided to move us um, in with my aunt and my cousin, and we got a house in the suburbs. Um, but that slowly, you know, degradated into it. it went from a thriving community to a, a really impoverished um, and uh, crime-ridden community. And so uh, growing up in that area, you know, it was very common um, to, to hear about, you know, people getting shot, friends, relatives, um, neighbors, even. Um, it was very common to hear about robberies happening. Um, and But it's in the midst of all of that. Um, I also grew up in church. So in the midst of all of these things, um, you never really felt like, even though it was happening around you, that it could happen to you. Um, and, and, you know, in 2018, just after I had moved back to begin my master's program, uh, from working in DC. Um, I got shot in front of the house that I grew up in. Um, I was standing outside having a, an evening with my family. Um, and you know, right as, as, um, a young man was walking past us, he decided to open fire. Um, my, my younger cousin, she was eight years old in time. She was right next to me. Um, her, her brother who was, uh, who was 21 at the time? You know, he was on the other side of me. Um, the younger kids were, you know, in the in the yard playing, and you know, fortunately, by the grace of God, I was the only one that was that was uh, shot. Um, but you know, it was a, a kind of a surreal moment because I couldn't believe that, you know, without provocation, this is something that could happen. Um, but I was also grateful that, you know, at the same time, no one else was injured. But then fast forward three months later, um, the cousin that I grew up with, you know, was killed behind the church that we grew up in, um, in the West Pullman neighborhood. And, you know, to this day, you know, there have been no uh, arrests made. Um, There have been no, you know, um, active leads pursued on, you know, his killers. And then the young man who shot me. So, you know, much of what I do today, all of what I do today um, is, you know, in honor of his memory, but also in, in an effort to prevent what happened to us from happening to other young people or other people period across the city of Chicago.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. I know those are, uh, it's gotta be really difficult uh, for you. And and thank you for turning that very negative experience uh, into something positive and and doing what you do to try to help your community be better, and, and it's this is more than crime. You do so much more. You work in economic development, but it really is all tied together, right? Crime, economic Absolutely. development, education, it's all pieces, parts. So there's a big movement across the country, and, you know, it's for the most part all been implemented, although there are still people who are rolling forward with some elements of this, the criminal justice reform. How do you feel like criminal justice reform has impacted crime in America?
0: Well... The thing about criminal justice reform in 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 the in the current context through which we typically discuss the topic, it isn't about stopping crime. Many people want to go to the end result and change, you know, how prisons work. And they think changing how prisons work will ultimately reduce crime. And and like what I like to tell people is that you can't skip to point Z when your issue is is at point. You know b or c and think that's going to solve it you, you know you, you got you can't work backwards with these things you have to be you have to start at the source right and so when we talk about criminal justice reform yes there are issues you know of policing of over policing in certain communities um there are issues you know of pris- prisons not being a place of rehabilitation but of 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 incarceration and detention that kind of breeds you know um more violence and and, and, and things like that but the true issue that we should be tackling when we talk about criminal justice reform, it's changing the inputs that lead people to think that crime, um, the violence, what have you, is the proper outlet through which to express themselves or through which to meet their needs, right? And so if we talk about, and this is where you know economics come into play, if we talk about the lack of, 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 of stable and, and pay, well-paying jobs in the community, the lack of education, that plagues our communities, um, the lack of, of, of mental health and, and, and um, quality healthcare resources that plagues these communities, they, when you change those things and you solve those issues, you're gonna to begin to see a dramatic reduction in crime. People aren't just committing crime because they like committing crimes and they aren't committing crimes because they have a certain predisposition to commit crimes. Those things aren't true. But because of the lack of resources that are available, you see more people resulting to crime. Um, and so if we change that, that's where cr- true criminal justice reform happens. You change that, then you change the input, then you talk about changing the way in which certain um, crimes are sentenced, the way in which you know, um, prisons function. But you're gonna see that these things start to work themselves out because they're gonna be less people committing crimes going to prison ending up in prison, and things like that. So I always like to, to steer the conversation to the root cause instead of solving a symptom of what the, what the actual problem is.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, everything we talk about, right? So I, I served on the school board for 12 years, um, giving kids an opportunity. We call education the great equalizer, right? You give kids a good education or give them an opportunity to go in and have a profession and to be a productive member of society, their chances of doing that, their chances of of uh, not committing crime, are uh, dramatically changed. And so, yeah. and then, and then, frankly, Daquan, from an economic development standpoint, right? If you're if you want to bring your business to a community, if you want to bring your business, you want to move it from one place to the other, or you want to expand you really don't, when you look at where to go, you're not going to go to a high crime area because you're not going to expose your employees to that or your company to that. So <laughs> it, it, I love what you're doing because it's so intertwined. And I think every part of it plays on the other part of it. And it's sort of this, this cycle that we have to get through. So one of the things I, I did want to talk to you about is that is what's going on in Illinois. Um, I wanted, uh, you know, it's been all over the news. Uh, Governor Pritzker has been promoting this Safety Act. Uh, Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, the details of that and then maybe about what you believe the impact may be uh, relative to your community?
0: Absolutely. You know, I I will say (laughs) that, you know, politicians, they love to come up with clever acronyms and, and, you know, names that, Make a piece of bad legislation sound like something people actually want, right? Um, and that's the case with the Safety Act. Um, you know, the, just the, the name of it is giving people a false sense of security um, and making people believe that that through the enactment of this law, um, the rest of it, you know, many parts of it, had already been in effect years ago. Um, but the rest of it, which is now in effect. That, that we're going to be safer we're going to be you know we're going to have more prosperous communities, and that 's just not the case this The safety act eliminates cash bail for people who commit crimes and felonies such as second degree murder, um, drug induced homicide, robbery, kidnapping, threatening a public official, um, and the list goes on and on these are these are violent crimes through which people who are being released back into the community. Um, and it's not to say that they're not, that they won't have a court date, they will have a court date, but the, the, um, judge, unless the judge makes a, a, um, decision that this person is a clear and convincing threat to the community, that person is then released back into the society, um, until their court date, which, you know, in Illinois, it can be weeks, even months post, you know, the original arrest. Um, and, you know, another provision that I, that I I looked at. Um, that I found interesting was um, under the new Safety Act, when an individual who is on house arrest violates their house arrest, there is a window of up to forty-eight hours that they have to roam freely before the uh, authorities can actively begin searching for them. That means a person could be almost to elastic before they get flagged, and you know people start searching for them. But but more more like. Uh, prob- probable is a person can you know who's on house arrest who's who's been in detention for let's say um assault and battery or domestic violence they have the time and the freedom to then go and perpetrate another crime against that 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 former lover spouse um or employer whoever um and then you know we the police can't even come look for them. they they can't even rule them as a suspect um until 48 hours if they're still in violation in that 48 hour period. That isn't keeping our community safer. That, that isn't helping you know, the, the families and that are, that are suffering in the city. And this disproportionately affects black and brown communities in, in Chicago, because I mean, across Illinois, because it is in our communities, unfortunately, that we're seeing higher rates of crime, that we're seeing you know, higher rates of homelessness and, and, um, and in poverty. And so as this you know, new law is rolling out and, and people are coming to grips with it, you know, I, I unfortunately see us going into a place of utter chaos and lawlessness um, if we don't you know, really turn around and, and empower our police, empower our, our neighborhood watch and safety um, communities to kind of speak up and enact and, um, and change on this.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty amazing when I look at the list, and, and, and I don't know all the laws in Illinois, but in, in the state of Louisiana, second-degree murder is, is uh, punishable by mandatory life in prison. And so if you think you're gonna get convicted, are you gonna stick around for a court date? I don't think so. Uh, and so it's, um, it seems uh, kidnapping. I mean, you kidnap someone, the victim goes home, the perpetrator, the accused, gets out. What happens mm-hmm. if they go do it again? You know, it's it's exactly. it seems really crazy. One of the things that I thought about when I was looking through this, and we've had some of this in some of the areas in Louisiana that I work in, is the uh, chilling effect it could have on witnesses who are set mm-hmm. to testify against the accused. I mean, we've had people in in Baton Rouge and New Orleans murdered uh, by outside people while someone was in prison. But if that person is about to go, uh, you know, life in prison, they can literally walk up to the person's house and, and intimidate them. I think that is uh, pretty crazy. What it, what, it seems like this, this, as you call it, I don't even like to use the word safety. It seems like anarchy to me, but, uh, how, how do you think this is going to impact victims?
0: Uh, I, I see it in the very same way. You're going to have a lot of people, a lot of victims who will be afraid to speak out against their accusers, who, you know, will either have to go into police protection um, or, you know, may even leave, you know, the state um, as a result. You know, we, we, we've we seen it um, time and time again in Chicago where, you know, the very same things happen. You have people who are, you know, set to testify against um, perpet- various different perpetrators who are either threatened or killed um, as a result of their... You know involvement in these things, um, and so unfortunately, this law doesn't, you know, specify any protections, any um, you know, any any um, opportunities for victims to be, you know, heard um, in this situation. And, and you know, I was watching an interview um, that a, a local lawyer did, and she talked about how you know, this is all in an attempt to make our communities and our streets safer, right? And to which, um, in response, we had, there was a a local mother who, um, you know, was interviewed on the street, and she talked about uh, a a domestic violence situation that she had been involved in. And her question was, how does this law protect me, right? And I was sort of, you know, like, Like, I kind of told you so, but I didn't, you know, wanted to keep the composure. But the lawyer who was, you know, given this option, she had no response. She, you know, she circum, she circumlocuted the topic um, and and put it back on the matter of criminal justice reform and brought it back to a matter of race. When I was like, this has nothing to do with that. This has nothing to do with race. And this is a a failed attempt at criminal justice reform. And the, the, what this mother is asking is you know, the man who abused her and her family is, if he's let out until until his court date, what's to stop him from going back and hurting them? What's to stop him um, to what, who's protecting them in this situation. Um, and this law doesn't speak to that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I you know echo the sentiments that you shared about things that have happened in Louisiana, that we're gonna see the same types of issues taking place here in Illinois, unfortunately, Unless, like I said before, we're empowering our our police, we're empowering our communities to look out for one another um, and to support one another as we you know come to terms with this new law.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it seems stunning to me because in my uh, in my research and following it, I, I was in the uh, is it Chicago Sun Times that lists yeah. every person's name that's been murdered by another or killed by another person. Uh, is it's got to be closing in on seven hundred. The last time I looked at it, it was six seventy 670 something. Six seventy five. Six seventy five. Amazing. Yeah. And so clearly, you you all are a big city compared to you know what we deal with down here. So one of the things I really liked is is the fact that you talked about some of the criminal justice reforms. They're they're looking at the end result, the prison, the incarceration, and those sorts of things. But there are some other elements that uh, are part of it. And and you know we we heard about the defund the police uh, movement. You know. Uh, and everything that went on with that, and then we're hearing—you know—you saw de incarceration, right? And one of the concerns I always had about deincarceration incarceration is, is—is if you get out of prison or you get out of whatever a rehab center, where do you go? We well, go back to the community from whence you came, and and the concern is—is is that we turn people loose into communities? And look, I'm sure. Uh, I think, I don't know if I shared this with you, but I I have two brothers who are both convicted felons, love them to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them now are, are very productive members of society, but one of them did 16 years. And the reality of it is he came out and he made a life for himself. So I know a lot of people who were de-incarcerated went out and did good things, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Filled the workforce and did those things. But there are a there's an element of, of those people who go back into the communities from whence they came and they bring back to that community what they brought there the first time. Is that what you're seeing?
0: Absolutely. And, and, and much like, you know, your brothers, um, you know, my, my stepfather is, has the same testimony. You know, he, he did uh, nine years in prison and when he came out, you know, he was a totally different person. Uh, and he's today, to this day, a very productive member of society he's he owns his own catering company um he he has a, a job that he's worked at for you know over 10 years now um and you know more than anything he mentors young young black men and teaches them one how to become entrepreneurs but then also how to you know not how to how to change their outlook so that they aren't resorting to life of crime and violence and things like that um, and for him his saving grace was while he was in prison, there were programs uh, made available to him that allowed him to get an education. He got a bachelor's degree in general education. He was able to, um, to become a chef. He's a chef by trade. Um, he was also able to become a chaplain and, you know, for him, that is where he found his faith. Um, and it completely changed. He came out a completely different person. Those things exist. Right. And unfortunately, Many prisons don't have those resources available to the inmates, and in like in the case of Chicago, um, where our 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 penitentiary here, um, there are resources available, but because of the amount of violence and the amount of um, of, of like gang activity that exists in this in the lo- uh, local penitentiary, many of the programs had to be taken away um, because they you know the the police officers there. The security forces there are focused on keeping peace more than you know rehabilitating um and so unfortunately uh, what we do see many times is people come back into the community worse than they than they were when they left um into more um than than and, and you know willing to do um you know more violent crimes more um acts of showing more acts of aggression than there was when they when they um, originally were uh, detained and imprisoned, um, which you know does validate the discussion on criminal justice reform of how our prisons work. But you know, back to the beginning, it's all about what inputs are being put into that person. What what, is, what are they being exposed to in the beginning that leads them to a life of crime that leads them to prison? Right. Um, you know, you can't you can't isolate the conversation it's all you know it all ebbs and flows together.
1: well i think you make some great points there because the question is is it incarceration or is it rehabilitation and there is a dramatic difference between the two um the brother who did 16 years was able to get into a program he learned how to be a welder and he came out and uh, made a lot of money and bought a house and got married i mean it's a it's a great story you could make a movie out of it but that's he he would tell you that some of the other people who got out he knew right where they were going and they're back, right? And so it's that kind of cookie cutter approach. You really have to look at the individual and prepare them and then give them the resources. We know from our experiences that if you have structure when you come out, you'll have a much better chance at being successful. So thank you for sharing that. I've heard you speak before uh, about the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and how you think it impacts your community and things that maybe they should be doing and that we should be doing.
0: Absolutely. You know, uh, even from the height of it, um, you know, back in 2020, um, you know, I was telling everybody that there's a difference between – the sentiment and the statement black lives matter and the organization of black lives matter. This, this, the statement is true. You know, black lives, black lives do matter. And, you know, as a black man, I can, I can honestly say that I have experienced situations where I felt as though, and it wasn't just like white people, you know, to, to me, but it was, you know, just other black people even, but I felt as though my life didn't matter to those people. Right. So you know, back in the height of, you know, a, a George Floyd's murder and in and, and the height of uh, all the civil unrest, I agree with the sentiment that, yes, black lives do matter, you know, but there's a difference between that and what the organization came together and, and sold us, right? And what the organization sold us was a high level of Marxist ideology, uh, political ideology. It was a high level of, anarch- of anarchist theory. Um, <clears throat> a, a, a notion that if you, if you defund the police, your community will be safer. If, if you in your corporation's boardroom give us millions of dollars without oversight, you will be considered not racist. That if, if you as a, as a person that isn't Black to, uh, speaks out against us, then you're automatically racist and you're irredeemable you know, and, and you deserve violence to be perpetrated uh, toward you. Those things, and, and the list continues, those things were the antithesis of of what the movement, of what the sentiment stood for, right? We, we're talking about that in order for all lives to matter, we must recognize that Black lives matter too, right? That is very different from what, from what we saw. And what we saw was a, a organization that in self-enriched, that, that, that purposely misled the world, the world. Like they, what they did was amazing. They sparked protests from people all around the world. And I, I traveled the world extensively, you know, and, and to see people in Germany, France um, and, and, and parts of, of, of Africa coming together and talking about something that they have no knowledge, no personal understanding of what it's like, but them sparking that conversation it was amazing. Like, I, I couldn't believe the global reach of this organization. But to have that influence and that power and to use it to enrich yourselves, to, you know, lie about supporting the families who were directly affected by very real issues to, you know, buy these, these big mansions and you know, um, give your friends $100,000 $100, and $200,000 contracts and things like that, it was a slap in the face to, to not just the Black community, but to all of America and everyone who stood behind that organization, right? Um, so that was one thing. On the police, the from the police front, you know, from the very beginning, that didn't make sense to me. You want us to remove the city budget from, you know, or, or reallocate, as they, as they said, the, the, the budget that the city gives to the police forces um, without a real plan as to where those things will go. You know, you would hear some people say, oh, that would go toward mental health resources. What, how does that equate? Oh, that would go toward education. How? No one had a real plan. It was people screaming to the ether and saying things that ignite a, a visceral response in people um, but with no real plan of action and no real understanding of the consequences that ensue as a result of of igniting and, and throwing gas on a flame, you know um, of a of a tension that kind of has already existed, um, but kind of blew it out of proportion, right? And so now we look at the autonomous zones that that um, that resulted um, from this, you see that they are in other states of chaos. Police had to be, not just police, but National Guard had to be brought into the part that this autonomous zone in Seattle because people were being people. They were, you know, there was lawlessness. There was anarchy and chaos. The exact opposite of of, of what, of the vision that BLM sold us, but it was the exact intent of what they meant behind what they were doing. Um, and so, you know, what, what we did at CCA is in recognizing the degradation that specifically this type of rhetoric uh, led to for the black and brown communities across the country, we decided to speak up. And we decided to um, take that message of, this is the wrongdoing that, that this organization, um, that their support for defunding police has, has caused to the corporations that funded them. Um, and we, you know, continue to make noise, continue to be active until they heard us and until they understood that their support, you know, millions of dollars to this organization um, led to the deaths of black and brown police officers and the, and the injury of police officers. And we, you know, we we were connected to several um, widows and spouses who wanted to tell their story because. The movement, the defund the police movement, the organization Black Lives Matter, shut them out. They they made them seem as though they were, you know, to blame for their husband's death. When in, in reality, it was the rhetoric that this organization had had, had put into our society, had had um, perpetuated. And more than anything, it was the corporations that funded them that allowed it to happen. And so, you know, we brought together three truly amazing women, um, spouses of, of officers, one who was killed uh, during the BLM riots in St. Louis, um, Officer uh, Ann Dorn, her husband, David Doran, um, while he was simply protecting his uh, being security for his friend's pawn shop. Um, and these young men came in and they murdered him um, and robbed the store. What justice is there in that? How does that prove that Black Lives Matter? How does that support the calls for racial equity and inclusion. It doesn't. And and we, we also had Dominique Zoriaga, whose husband um, was killed at the beginning of uh, 2022 um, as a result of soft on crime prosecutors who, you know, we, there was a repeat offender who had been arrested multiple times, yet the judge refused to prosecute him to the fullest extent of the law. And so, after, you know, responding to a routine call where, you know, it was a domestic violence situation. The gentleman had a gun. Um, upon entering the house, the young, the man shot fired and, uh, he shot three shots. One of them hit officer Jason, um, in the head. This man was 23 years old. Mm-hmm. He was married for only about eight, nine months. Um, and then we had off, um, um, Esther Vive, who, whose husband, again, as a result of this soft prime crime posture, that we're seeing as a um, as the new cause for uh, criminal justice reform, you know, her husband responding to a routine traffic stop, a young man who had been um, again arrested several times for for um, grand theft auto, but not prosecuted to the fullest extent. You know, he commits he steals a car. Officer Vivi is responding to it as he realizes the car is stolen and begins to. Try to you know get the young man out of the car. The young man slams the door, takes off, drags officer VV, you know, almost a mile. Um, he's you know functionally a vegetable at this point, and now his family, you know, is left to deal with the wreckage as a result. You know, and and we we've, we've seen time and time again that the rhetoric perpetuated by BLM and the postures that have been adopted by prosecutors. And by judges of being soft on crime as a, as a means of criminal justice reform, having disastrous consequences, especially in the black and brown communities across the country
1: yeah Wow those are. Those are some sad stories. And I, I do appreciate you sharing that because you're in the middle of it. And I, you know, our audience needs to understand those things. So let me ask you this, Daquan, how can we help? I mean, is there you are you guys collect? Of course, you're collecting money, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> but how can we help? Is You know, go to your website. I mean, is there anything that we can do in the listening public to where we can support what you're doing? Because I think what you're doing is amazing work. And how can we help you?
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, money, money does help, um, you know, no money, no, no money, no mission. Um, so you can go to our website. Uh, it's called uh, ConcernedCommunities.org. Um, you can check out a lot of the videos that we're putting together. So a lot of the work that we're doing, we're, we're highlighting narratives of individuals who are either in the community doing the work to solve these issues as it relates to uh, economic empowerment and development of, of, of minority communities. As it relates to education and promoting, you know, quality and value education and school choice, um, reducing crime and violence in our communities, um, and then promoting the values of faith and family. We're, we we support other organizations um, to help them advance their mission in those areas. Um, another thing that that we do is we we share their stories publicly. We 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 create videos and and content that um, we share with news outlets and begin to change the narrative around, you know, the progress of our, of our communities. Um, So, you know, you can donate to CCA through our website, um, ConcernCommunities.org, and help us in that way. Also, if you have a story to share on our website, you can reach out to us and, you know, we, we would love to chronicle more narratives, not just the, the negative ones, but the positive ones of people doing, you know, making a change in their communities in a positive way. Um, We also engage with um, members of Congress and our newest effort, we're calling it the the Conversations with Black America Tour, where we are going city to city um, and we're going and we're having constructive conversations in the heart of the cities about various topics. And so our next one, which will be January 20th um, in Tampa, Florida, is all about reducing crime and safety and promoting quality education. Um, in the community, we're bringing together community leaders, pastors, but more importantly, we need the community itself, you know? So, you know, as we're building this out, if you know, if there's a need for us to come to Louisiana, we're more than happy to do that. <laughs> I love Louisiana, and I, and I love the people of Louisiana. So, you know, if we can be a resource in that way, and as everything that we're doing with the Conversations with Black America Tour is leading to the creation of our contract with Black America, that we're working with members of Congress on a bipartisan basis to create a set of legislative agenda items, as well as community development programs that can be immediately implemented without legislative, um, without a legislative package, um, that each of these members of Congress will sign, agree to, and you know begin to act on um, to further progress our communities. And so, um, you know, if we can. Get help, the individuals who want to be a part of this. We would love to have you and love to you know work with you and support it.
1: Well, great. I we need organizations like yours. We need people like you, um, and we need a chapter in uh, Louisiana. And I promise you, when you come here, we'll feed you well, right? Whatever you want. Oh, yeah. like. If you come here the right time of year, we'll even have some ball crawfish for you. So, uh, but that, <laughs> look, that is Daquan Bruce, uh, concerned citizens for America. We're going to put uh, the. Uh, website and the and where you can donate, I plan to donate, um, we're going to try to see if we can raise you a little money and then we're going to try to get you down to Louisiana because we need, victims need a voice, right? And black Absolutely. and brown people need a, a reasonable voice to move forward. So I thank you personally for your work, for your courage and uh, for your commitment to making America uh, a great place. I hope you'll come back to our show uh, when we get to see a little bit more about the the full impact of the Safety Act. And then also, I wanna talk to you about economic development and the black and brown community too. So uh, we're gonna get you back on the show. And again, thank you for being here. Um, So here's my take. We have major issues in America with violent crime today, and we're not doing what we need to do to address it. You listen. Uh, to Daquan talk about, you know, a set of of items that we can do federally, we need to be looking at that state to state, the law shouldn't be that crazy different when you move from one state line to the other. We are not as a society holding people accountable, that's pretty clear from the conversation. We're making policy decisions without considering the unintended consequences of those decisions. We're clearly not collecting and sharing data. I'm all over that, right? We need to know data on crime, and we need it in a meaningful way. And until we hold people accountable for their actions, we'll continue to watch our country, our communities, and our cities decline. Our streets are dangerous, and it's getting worse. And I'm sticking with the quote from the movie uh, Network in 1976. Go to the window and yell, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. And that's what we're going to have to have to do. So don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle on all three platforms is at criticalcon187. Uh, and if you are not on social media, our email address is show at gmail.com. Again, if you have a good take, we'll share it with our audience. If you have a great take, you'll be like Daquan and, Daquan and be on the show. So thank you for being with us. See you next time on Critical Condition America at a crossroads.
0: Critical Condition, America at a Crossroads is an off-script production.